Good morning to all of you and welcome to this time. <clears throat> Thank you for coming again. I'm sorry you have to put up with my voice this morning, but um, these Michigan-Illinois colds like to settle in, and they usually like to settle in in my throat. When I was first in the ministry, um, our first little church we served had uh, a boiler, and I can well remember when the um, boiler turned on for the first time, the sanctuary was dry as a bone, and I usually just dismissed the congregation and said, you better go home, I can't speak. <laughs> Not really, it wasn't that bad, but um, last week, Sunday, I had a tough time uh, speaking, and this morning it's still lingering with me, but uh, I trust you'll be able to uh, put up with that, and thank you again for coming. You have on your tables today um, this blue, lovely blue-colored sheet. Uh, some of you asked for the uh, quote by Paul Tillich that I used last week, uh, you are accepted, and um, so I asked Karen if she'd be willing to um, uh, duplicate that for us, and so that's, that's available for you uh, today. The sheet that we're following today is the yellow sheet, which is session uh, number two. And uh, I want to remind you that um, this time together has uh, two basic components to it. Uh, the first is a biblical study of uh, grace, the concept, the truth regarding grace, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then some consideration uh, of the uh, book by Dr. Smeads, Lewis Smeads, the book entitled Shame and Grace. And I told you last week that you need not uh, own the book. You don't have to buy the book. In fact, I think most of you um, or some of you bought the book and the bookstore is probably sold out. If you want one, I'm sure you can talk to Henrik Luke in the bookstore or the person who may be there and they can order you one as well, but it's not necessary for you to, uh, to buy the book. I want to begin this morning by sharing two or three stories from Dr. Smeads. The reason I like this book is because he tells very homey stories. He was born and raised in the area of Muskegon, Michigan, and, um, and I was born and raised in the area of Grand Rapids. So a lot of his stories I can relate to. It seems like he's speaking to me. In fact, last week, uh, someone came up to me afterwards and said, how do you know me so well? And uh, I don't, but it seems like Dr. Smead's stories connect in a very powerful way. And so I want to do that this morning. I want to read two or three stories from the book and uh, I'm in the hard copy, and so some of you who bought the book, may, it may be in, in soft cover, and so the pages might not be the same. But um, nonetheless, you can listen to my wonderful voice, and uh, you know, if, you've, if, you've, if you uh, know me at all, you know that I love stories, and I believe that um, with the wisdom writer, there is nothing new under the sun. I think a lot of stuff has already been written, yet we keep publishing books and everybody thinks they seem to be the authority on something or other. But the fact of the matter is that stories many times convey tremendous truth. And, um, and these stories I'm going to read from the book now, I think, have profound truth for us. And um, you will perhaps remember that uh, Dr. Smead's theme is that um, shame is, is about ourselves. It's not guilt. It's not how, our, how we stand before God. But rather, shame has to do with how we look upon ourselves. And if you have the yellow sheet in front of you, you will see that um, under that first heading, unhealthy shame, he writes, shame can be like a signal from a drunken signalman who warns of a train that is not coming. The pain of this shame is not a signal of something wrong in us that needs to be made right. Our shame is what is wrong with us. It's a false shame. 
because the feeling has no basis in reality. It is unhealthy shame because it saps creative powers and kills our joy. It is a shame we do not deserve because we are not as bad as our feelings tell us we are. Undeserved shame is a good gift gone bad. And then in the chapter that he titles Leading Candidates for Shame, he, um, one of the sections in that chapter is entitled People Condemned by Bad Memories. And this is the story. It is rumored that a certain psychologist in one of the Iron Curtain countries during the days of Joseph Stalin had an uncanny way of getting innocent people to confess to just about any crime against the state that Stalin decided to accuse them of. This psychologist could get them to confess to anything at all, even things they would never have dreamed of doing. Their confessions got them a cell in one of Stalin's gulags. A visitor from the West asked the psychologist for the secret of his success. I work on the Mongolian peasant hypothesis. Mongolian peasant? Yes, the secret of my success is my belief that everyone has a Mongolian peasant. Tell me what you mean. The psychologist told this story, quote, A nobody of a man, shabby and ill at ease, is brought into a large office that clearly belongs to a very important person. Everything there smacks of authority. Dark mahogany walls, a huge oak desk, uncluttered, a small flag on one corner of it, behind it in a high leather chair, an erect, gray-haired man wearing a general's uniform with rows of medals on his chest. And the general speaks, I have a million rubles in my desk drawer. Here, take a look. They're all yours. Mine? On one condition. What condition? You must press this small red button on my desk. What happens when I press the button? An old man in Mongolia drops dead. He dies. He dies at once. No pain. What for? What has he done? That is not your business. Trust me. It is for the good of the people. All you need to know is that the moment you press the button, the peasant dies and you get a million rubles. The man presses the button. He takes the money and goes home to live with the memory that to get some money he has killed a stranger who did him no harm. He would not have done it for a few rubles, of course, not even for a thousand, not even for ten thousand, but a million who could refuse. The man knows in his heart that the amount of money made no difference. He killed an innocent stranger to get it. After five years, he commits suicide. The million rubles are stuffed in a sack under his bed, and the state takes them back the day of his funeral. Smeads goes on to say that everybody, according to the psychologist, has a Mongolian peasant in his life. Everyone has once harmed another person for his own advantage. The psychologist digs around in the memory until he finds the peasant. Once he has it, he dangles it in front of the accused person until that person is writhing in shame for being such a wretched human being. He will confess to anything in order to atone for his shame. When I was 16, I had a job washing dishes and dispensing drinks at a ritzy soda fountain and coffee shop in Muskegon, Michigan, across the street from the Michigan Theater, the best picture show in town. 
a customer would walk up and take a seat and a high stool in front of a genuine marble bar and order herself a Coca-Cola. I would serve it up to her in a slim-bottomed, round-bosomed drinking glass that had the name Coca-Cola etched on its side. For this, the customer would pay a nickel. The candy shop also had booths where Muskegon's better class would eat hot fudge sundaes and drink hot chocolate before heading home after the show. One night, two young black people, a man and a woman, walked in and sat down in one of the booths. Gus Ballas, who owned the shop, was there. I watched him as the couple walked in. He gave a quick shake of his head to the waitresses. The white patrons drifted in, sat down in the booths. Waitresses came to bring them their hot fudge sundaes and their cups of hot chocolate, which they ate and slurped while they flirted and gabbed about the moving picture they had seen. As soon as they finished, other patrons grabbed the empty seats and played out the same script. The black couple sat through two sittings. Nobody looked at them except me. I glanced at them out of the corner of my eye. They did not speak to each other or even look at each other. They did not signal to any waitress or ask to speak to the manager. They just sat there. Finally, the man signaled to his friend, and they walked out together. They had to pass by the soda fountain where I was standing. I wanted to tell them that I was sorry. I wanted to throw down my apron and tell Gus Ballas to take his job and shove it. But I needed the job more than I wanted my honor. I poured another Coca-Cola. Now and then I remember what happened. It does not matter that nobody had heard about civil rights in Muskegon, Michigan when I was 16 or that I needed a job. I have my own Mongolian peasant and he shames me. And then a third story which also comes from Dr. Smead's own life. This is under the section, Leading Candidates for Shame Are Those Who Dwell in the Shadows of Their Fathers. A child at Hartford Street Christian School was a somebody if his dad was a somebody, and a dad was a somebody if he did the right sort of work. It was natural for Mrs. Heatheis, my fourth grade teacher, to begin the new school year with a new class by asking each pupil to tell the rest of the class what sort of work his or her dad did. Mrs. Heatheis began with Martha Ardsma, that's the last name, two A's, mind you, two A's in that last name. Would you like a name like that? It'd always be first. Mrs. Heatheis began with Martha Ardsma, who sat in the front seat in the row next to the windows. The teacher would work back and then forward down the next row and back again and so on until she knew where each child stood. Since my last name began with the letter S, I sat at a desk halfway down the last row. The call rolled up and down the aisles until it landed on me. What does your father do, Lewis? Nothing. Nothing? Surely your father does something. He doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything? Was he laid off? No. What then? He's dead. Why should a boy feel shame? 
to say that his father died. I was walking down the street in Amsterdam one day and felt a need to stop at one of the city's handy sidewalk latrines. A male in distress could locate such a comfortable station every few blocks in the center of town. Women were not so thoughtfully accommodated. The latrine was surrounded by a circular metal screen six feet high, high enough to hide the head. Its bottom side began a foot off the ground so that a man's shoes and pants cuffs signaled, as it did to me on this occasion, that somebody was inside. A man came out of the latrine carrying a bucket, a mop, and a bottle of soap, that is, the tools of his trade. He walked over to his bicycle, put each tool in its proper bracket, pedaled off. I suppose this man may have spent eight hours a day mopping up one latrine after another. Five days a week, 50 weeks a year, for 30 years. That is what a man's life can come to. 277,500 clean sidewalk latrines. Assume he managed 37 per day. As I watched the man bike off in dignity, I imagined his young son, a fifth grader, as I was in Mrs. Heatheis's class, waiting his turn while the kids of his class reported on their father's vocations. My father is a cleaner of latrines. I hoped he would not feel the shame I felt in Mrs. Heatheis's roll call. Pretty profound stories, aren't they? Dr. Smeeds then, in his chapter entitled Unhealthy Shame, says this, the most common sources of our false self are these three. They're listed on your sheet. The secular culture, graceless religion, and unaccepting parents. This is how he explains those three. Our secular culture tells us that if a person wants to be acceptable, she must look good, feel good, and make good. The self we are supposed to be comes in a svelte body, draped in designer clothes, and capped with a gorgeous face. Further, she feels fantastic about herself. She feels seductive, alive, adorable, and wholly fulfilled. To top it off, she makes a lot of money and has considerable clout with important people. If we are too fat or too thin, too poor and too powerless, our culture expects us to feel shame. I don't know about you, but we as parents and grandparents ought to be concerned about the tremendous amount of influence Madison Avenue and advertising and all of that has on our children today. The need to excel, the need to be, the need, the need to look right, the need to have right attitudes and right clothing and proper garments and proper shampoo in order to give yourself a sense of feeling okay when hundreds and thousands of young people were told are constantly struggling today with that whole self-identity, that whole wondering about who they are, and teenage suicide is some of the highest it's been in the history of our country. All of that having to do, I think, with unhealthy shame. The second category, he says, is graceless religion. 
graceless religion tells us that to be acceptable, we must live up to the customs and shun the taboos of its tradition. It shames us when we do what it forbids and do not do what it requires. Our religion-shaped self easily becomes a self of hypocrisy and appearances. We feel compelled to make up for what we lack inside by obeying all its prescriptions on the outside. Graceless religion creates the illusion that if we only follow the letter of the rules, we will be acceptable. And then if we fail, we will be rejected and despised. It's no wonder today, as far as I understand it, that many, many young people reject religion. Religion as it's presented oftentimes to the church or by people who think that they have a corner on the truth and the religion that says, if you just do this, then you'll be accepted by God and by others. And finally, the third category is unaccepting parents impose a more complicated ideal on us. On the positive side, they tell us that to be acceptable, we must win their approval by doing whatever they expect of us. On the negative side, they convince us that we are never going to be acceptable enough to meet their approval. They put us in a double bind. We, mo we know we must be very good if we are to earn their love, but we also know that we do not have it in us to be that good. Some of you will remember the um, memoir by Frank McCourt, Angela's Ashes. I'm listening to it now. I hadn't read it before. But um, I do a lot of driving in my work uh, in Grand Rapids and so on, so I, I'm listening to McCourt. And the overwhelming thing is that his father was a drunk, just a plain dead drunk, and uh, never brought home money, went to work in England for a long time, and thought there was work in England while his family stayed in Ireland, never sent home the check for the support. But whenever the father came home, those kids always had a sort of bow down. After all, most children respect their fathers. And um, whenever the father left them again or set out to go to the bar to spend the night or whatever, he would always say, take care of your mother and practice your religious practices regularly. Unaccepting parents sometimes also provide a sense of unhealthy shame within us. Well, there's a lot more that I think um, Dr. Smeeds helps us with, but I want us now to spend some time looking at the scripture passage that I've chosen for this morning. And it is from Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, or you just want to listen to my reading of it, um, Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Keep in mind that we are talking about the amazing grace of God. God's unmerited undeserved favor that he has demonstrated to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that you and I have no standing before God except through the grace of Christ. It's a truth that we know about. It's a truth that we've heard about. But it's a truth that continues to be probably one of the most difficult things that the church proclaims, not only but that believers inside the church and Christians can really absorb and appreciate because we live in a culture that says, no, I need to do something. If this is redemption, if this is salvation, if this is what God is doing for me on my behalf, 
then I need to do something. The Bible says God's amazing grace is free. Now, Romans chapter 5 then is a, a section where Paul again speaks about this amazing grace. Let's hear what Paul has to say. Yes. I think it's true of most societies. Yes. I don't think it's, uh, um, I don't think it's an American thing so much, except that um, America uh, being a land of opportunity and a land where um, we do a lot of exchanging for goods and services, feel that we have to, we have to do something in response. Let us hear Romans 5. Therefore, since we are justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the verse and the phrase now I want to focus on. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood... How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 2 through whom we have, that is, in Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I want you to try to fantasize uh, for just a few moments. And I want you to imagine yourself receiving a finely engraved document which says the following. In honor of the celebration of the 60th anniversary of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, you have been selected to represent the citizens of the United States of America at a state dinner, November 30, 2012, Buckingham Palace, London. How many of you received such an invitation? <laughs> I did. I don't know what's happened to me. Now, wow, how would you feel? What kind of feelings would be yours if you received that? Come on. Honor. Excitement. Pride. A little nervousness. Why? Yes, why? Why me? And a lot of practicing of the curtsy. Well, ultimately, you arrive at Buckingham Palace. You guys can sit there. We're not gonna, I'm not going to ask for a dialogue right now. Ultimately, you arrive at Buckingham Palace, and there are many other people there representing lots of other nations. And, and, and Lord Buckley informs you that he will introduce you to the queen at the appropriate time. And at last, you enter that inner room, walking past 
those long hallways in Buckingham Palace, walking past all of the centuries of history in that place. And Lord Buckley introduces you to royalty. You have obtained access to this gracious lady, one of the few reigning monarchs of our time. And your response would be different for any one of us. But I think an appropriate response would be, it is a privilege to be here. It is a privilege to be here. Now, switch the picture a moment. And let's assume that you are now the captain of a very large ship. You have the responsibility to see that the cargo, the passengers, the crew arrive at their destination in safety. Storm comes up, there's great concern. You know your ability to be able to handle this great vessel, but at the same time, you're also recognizing that you are, you are dependent on other people. And particularly, you are grateful that at last you arrive in the safety of the harbor, guided by the, the smaller ships that guide these huge ships into their, their, their harbors. And again, the word is the same. You have obtained access to this harbor. Both of these pictures, the picture of being able to be introduced to royalty and the picture of the captain bringing his ship safely to harbor, both of these pictures can be used to describe what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 2. Through Christ, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. It is as if Paul were saying that Jesus Christ ushers us into the very presence of God. Jesus opens the door for us so that we can enter into the presence of royalty. And when that door is opened, what we find is grace. Not condemnation, not judgment, not vengeance, but the sheer, undeserved, unearned, unmerited, incredible kindness of God. Or to use the second picture of the ship, so long as we try to depend on our own efforts to be right with God, then we are like mariners striving with the sea which threatens to overwhelm us. But through Christ, we have reached the haven of God's grace. And we know the calm then of depending not on what we can do for ourselves, but on what God has done for us. Yes, we who have responded in faith to Jesus Christ have come through a door. We have obtained access, if you please, into a secure place called grace. And we can only respond by saying, what a privilege. What a privilege. Now, before we go on to consider some of the privileges of this grace... I want to pause a moment and encourage you to spend some time today or this week thinking about the phrase, through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And as you picture this place, maybe some, some images will come to your own mind. And those of you who are artists and musicians and writers and poets and there are some of you here, will come up with something that you can share with us. How would you poetically or musically or artistically with pen or canvas and, and paint describe what it means to experience 
this access that we have to God. Paul goes on then in this passage to describe some of the privileges that result then from obtaining access to God. And I want to, I want to mention three or four of these uh, as, as we look at this passage. But anything else, anything you want to ask a moment uh, before we look at the privileges that result as being part of this grace of God to which we have access. Anybody have a, a question or a thought that you'd like to share with us? Because you know by this time I just keep rattling along. Yes, ma'am. Let's wait till the... This is recorded. This will be for posterity. Um, <laughs> as, as you were saying this, I, uh, I thought about uh, how we have access to God the Father when I think of the Old Testament and how the high priest had to go, uh, could only go once a year to offer forgiveness of sins for all the people. Yes. And we can go any time into the throne room of God. Yeah. And uh, that, that to me is uh, such a privilege and access to God that they didn't have in the Old Testament. Exactly. And, and thank you for making that observation because, you know, all of what, all of the Old Testament points then to that which uh, Christ was going to do and what Christ came to fulfill so that when the, the high priest could go behind the altar and when he could stand before God, and you will perhaps remember also that the scapegoat, the, the sins of the people were placed on the, on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat was sent out into the to the wilderness there to die and wander and so on. All of that imagery, uh, says the Old Testament or says the New Testament, is fulfilled then in the person of Christ, that we have continual access to the Father. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. Yes, right over here. Bob? I remember looking through some of my dad's uh, mail uh, and I, I saw a letter from uh, Queen Elizabeth he served in World War One, and she was graciously thanking him for uh, serving in, in, in her cause. Mm-hmm. And so I think that grace has its point, but I think respect is, is the, the real measure of, of acceptance. Okay, thank you very much. David, over here. When I was um, born, and I wasn't aware at uh, any particular age of this, uh, you know the uh, phrase is a part of the scripture about Beelzebub, uh, we were a house divided, and uh, that by grace has made all the difference. When I think about the uh, things that my family focused on, maybe not my mom, but my father and my brother. Uh, there's only one conclusion you could draw from that. What you see today is amazing grace. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, all of us, each one of us, should be able to um, speak about God's grace personally in the sense that we all have a story. And we all have a way of experiencing this grace of God, some of us more dramatically than others, perhaps. But um, we, I'm convinced that the way that the message of Christ is communicated today is through personal witness and personal stories, because we all have a story to tell. And, um, and it that is not dependent on the preacher on Sunday morning. It's not dependent on the minister who comes from the outside and speaks on Thursday morning here and log on for life. That, uh, it is dependent on, on all of us, each one of us, recognizing that we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. 
and uh, that story needs to be told. And unfortunately, what uh, is happening today, it seems to me anyway, and that is that in an effort for the church to be politically correct today, we are not, we are not uh, uh, speaking very much about our own personal encounter with, with the living Christ. And uh, that's where we fail, it seems to me. Um, the, the church, Christianity particularly, is being described as being very exclusive. You know, we, ha- we have the only message, we have the only Savior, and so people look at that and say, that's, that's a very exclusivistic um, um, story and, and language that you use. And the church ought to be countering that by simply saying, as Christians, this is what I know, this is what I believe, this is what I profess. We don't have to apologize for that. There's no reason to apologize for that. This is what I know. This is what I believe. Someone else may know something else or believe something else. They're not having any difficulty talking about it today. So the Christian ought to be able to speak with that kind of confidence also. Yes. Grace. Okay, uh, Grace is saying that her, her name, being Grace, is a constant reminder of the fact that she has experienced the unmerited favor of God. And uh, I've, I've often commented on people whose name is uh, Grace, that uh, you have a lot to live up to. <laughs> yes, Bobby. I'm reminded that when I was a little girl and I'd get all dressed up to go somewhere and I would go and ask my mother, how do I look? Wanting her to say, you look pretty or you look nice. She'd say, if you act as nice as you look, you'll always be accepted. (laughs) All right, let us look then at the privileges that result as having access to this grace of God. And the first thing that Paul mentions is peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, keep it in mind, please. Rid it down in your brain and wherever else you want to put it. But peace with God always means that we are restored to fellowship with God. And as a result, we have peace, true peace. Peace. We sometimes think of peace as being lack of conflict. That may be part of what uh, peace means, but that's how we have put content into the word today. Peace with God always means that we are restored to fellowship with God. And this word has a rich Old Testament background. And this word is surely connected with the coming of the Christ into the world. The people of the Old Testament, for example, looked for the coming of their Messiah, their comforter, their peacemaker. And perhaps you will remember uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, where the first 39 chapters talk about the judgment of God, the judgment that was coming, the judgment that came because of the disobedience of God's people. But then at the 40th chapter, there is a radical change in how Isaiah presents his message. And some of you will remember that in Isaiah chapter 40, the first verse, it goes something like this. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received double for all of her sins. And then uh, begins uh, that whole section of Isaiah where the judgment is still there, but God is going to restore his people. He's going to bring them back to the homeland. He is going to bring them back to the promised land. And in in that process then, the people will be restored to peace. What was the message of the angels to the shepherds? When Christ was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace. The Old Testament word for peace is what? Shalom. Shalom. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom. And it means complete peace, spiritual peace, physical peace, emotional peace. It has to do with the whole person of the individual. Everything has found its focus, has found its center point. And a strong inner serenity which believers receive from God and God alone is what this peace is is what Paul is talking about here. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul says in the 15th chapter, the 13th verse, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And in chapter 14, Paul says the kingdom of God means righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This serenity is ours because our war with God is ended. We are at peace with him. And then that peace, which passes all understanding, will keep, will mount like a a guard, like a sentinel, says Paul, over our hearts and the thoughts of believers. One of the One of the great books of the New Testament is the book of Philippians. And in every every chapter in that book, almost every verse, there's a a section in each of those chapters that that we ought to commit to memory and and focus on. But in the fourth chapter particularly, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Did you hear it? Anything. Anything. Too many Christians are going around wringing their hands today. The world is in a mess. And what about this election and all that junk? I'm sorry. We need to have a peace that's beyond that, my friends. The world's not going to come to an end as a result of this election. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry about it because God's in charge. And he says that we ought, and Paul says, we do not need to be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, in what? Everything, with thanksgiving, let your requests, let your prayers be made known unto God. And what is the result? And the peace of God which transcends all understanding. That means it goes beyond what you and I can possibly think or imagine. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, shall what? Guard your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ. I need my heart protected. And I need my mind protected today. Because we live in a culture that says, you know, you got to run way ahead. Something's really out of whack. You got to do something about it. All Paul says, no, there can be peace now <laughs> in the present. For today, whatever you may be experiencing. And the question always has to be, Do you and I know that peace personally, really? And I believe, and I, my theology is pretty simple at times, but I believe that our world will only know peace, true peace, when we acknowledge the Prince of Peace. And without being pessimistic, We're not going to see peace in the Middle East until people acknowledge that the baby who came many years ago is the Prince of Peace. (laughs) And what's been going on for years and years and years is not going to be settled by a few people signing some documents. It won't happen. And I'm not basically a pessimist at heart. I'm an optimist. (laughs) I'm an optimist because I believe God is in control. 
He'll bring down the curtain of history. He'll decide when it's time for the world to be finished and completed. So the first privilege that we have as a result of this peace, or the the result of this grace, is the peace of God. Second privilege is that we rejoice. Second part of of, of the second verse. Through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word in the original language for the word rejoice is really a kind of boasting. Not a boasting of what we have, or not a boasting of what you and I have done, but a boasting because of the gift that we have received. We have received the gift of new life, now in the present, and then the hope of sharing the glory of God. I don't know what that fully means. I don't know what that fully means. To hope for the sharing of the glory of God. The glory of God can mean radiance. It can mean light. But there's an Old Testament word um, about glory. And the word is kavuth. The heaviness of God. The weight of God. Being who God is. The hope is that we are going to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Whatever God is, whoever God is, wherever God is. That's what the Christian, that's what the believer is going to experience. And we have two significant seasons coming up. It seems to me the Thanksgiving thing, which is really a a national holiday, but it should be the kind of experience of believers all the time, and the Advent Christmas season. And these seasons should always have a right focus of true rejoicing. True rejoicing. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the third privilege, the third privilege is that we rejoice in our sufferings as well. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. Not only so, that is, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint uh, disappoint us because God's love has has, um, or because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. It is one thing to say that one of the privileges we experience of God's grace is the gift of rejoicing in the future hope that is ours. It's quite another thing to say that we can also boast in our hardships. Bodily sufferings are not usually an occasion of thanksgiving. Paul does not mean that we rejoice when surrounded with affliction, but we rejoice because of our sufferings. If the Christian life is a life of progress or growth or transformation or steady development in spiritual understanding and moral character building, then discipline is often necessary. And in a basically hostile environment, suffering breaks the spirit. But God's grace and God's peace uh, involves acceptance of our place in life. I have known many, many people throughout my ministry who have truly suffered. Suffered. But I have also known that many of those same people were able to rejoice in their suffering. I think one of the great gifts that Dr. Galehood has given to this congregation and to many people is to observe 
how a person uh, suffers. And he suffered a great deal. He's at the point now, and I commend him for that, to recognize that there comes a point when we don't need to suffer anymore. When we can commend ourselves to God and his care and keeping. And some of you will remember or perhaps know that if you use the website, his caring bridge uh, uh, message that he oftentimes posts, that in order to access that, you need to have a password. And the password is, a great good is coming. It's a phrase from George MacDonald, who Dr. Gail Hood wrote his doctoral thesis on. But uh, and a, and an interesting writer and theologian and poet and many other things that uh, MacDonald is. But I was intrigued by the fact that the password, a great good is coming, says something about whatever Dr. Gayhood hoped it would be current, that he would have new life, that there would be healing and all of that. But if that didn't happen, then a greater good <laughs> is coming as well. It's not an either or, it's a both and for the Christian. And so, um, everything that we learn through our sufferings, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, says Paul. All of it is because God's love has been poured into our hearts. All of it is of grace. So whatever you may be experiencing now, whatever you may be experiencing now, I trust as a pastor that you will know what it means to know that God's love and God's grace supports you now, in this time. One of the great passages in the scripture is found in 2 Corinthians the Apostle Paul talks about his own suffering. And perhaps you'll remember that the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that he had this, this thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. Some people said he had very bad eyesight. Some people said he had very bad bones. Some people will think other things. We don't know. But whatever it was, it was enough for Paul to think that if he, had, if he was healed, it would help him in his ministry. I wouldn't have to put up with all this, whatever it is. So he says, I, I prayed earnestly. And, um, and what was God's response? God's rep response was, your grace, my grace, is going to be sufficient. And my strength is going to be made perfect, mind you perfect in your weakness. That's why Paul could write to the Philippians, don't be anxious. <laughs> don't be anxious. Well, there's lots more that we could say about this passage. Lots more that should be covered. Each one of the phrases in these 11 verses is like a sermon. And I commend Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses to you for your own reading, for your own consideration. When you leave here today, keep in mind the picture of what it means to be able to have obtained access into this grace of God which has been made known in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who changes, transforms our life and living because of his undeserved grace in our lives. 
Thank you for each person in this room. God, you know who they are. You know their needs, their concerns, their interests, their joys. You know their shame and their disappointment. But we also know, dear God, that you are the one who can transform our lives in such a way that we can live to the praise of your name. So dismiss us now with your blessing and grant us the fullness of your joy, the fullness of your peace, and the fullness of your grace. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.